Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Trevor Connor and Dr. Stacey Sims. For decades, exercise science research has focused on male physiology. As a result, many well-established recommendations have not only been less than optimal for female athletes, but in many cases have actually been counterproductive. Leading the charge and calling specifically for research on female athletes is Dr. Stacy Sims. She's made it her goal to help female athletes optimize their performance. Today, Dr. Sims talked with us about her recommendations for athletes through the various stages of life, from addressing the menstruation cycle in athletes' teens and 20s, to the impact of pregnancy on training and racing, and finally, to perimenopause and menopause for athletes in their 40s and 50s. The recommendations provided by Dr. Sims will help any athlete addressing these questions, but are just as important for coaches who can't simply ignore these considerations anymore. Joining Dr. Sims, we have a host of experienced coaches and athletes, including multi-time world champion cyclist Rebecca Rush, coach Daniel Matheny, author and yoga specialist Sage Roundtree, and finally, top cyclist Kristen Legan. So, get ready to learn, because this is a fascinating episode. Now, let's make you fast. Listeners, it's here. Our guide to polarized training, featuring Dr. Steven Seiler. Training for endurance sports can be hard. It's way too easy to do too much for too long and pay the price. Our frequent contributor, Dr. Steven Seiler, is widely considered to be the modern pioneer of polarized training. We are excited to offer you the largest and most comprehensive body of work on this topic. All this content is free through September 29th. See it now at FastTalkLabs.com. Well, I think that we're in for a really great conversation today because we have with us, you know, Stacy Sims. And Stacy, I was doing a little bit of online stalking of you the other day. And you describe yourself on Instagram as a researcher, an author, and an expert. But in my opinion, I think that you're, you're a heck of a lot more than that, right? Um, you're a mom. You're an inspiration. You're sort of all of these things. And so I'm, I'm so glad that you're here to bring all of your different knowledge that you have on women and how us as coaches can work with them, how you can bring that knowledge to all of our listeners. Thanks for having me, but also like, whoa, thanks. <laughs> Well, great to have you on the show again. And this time we have you here in person because we've had you on before, but we were talking to you from New Zealand. Yeah, I'm in the in the real world of the U.S. now. Well, it's nice to have you here. You know, Stacy, when I was when I was doing that uh, Instagram stalking of you, I came across a post that you had that women are not small men, and that is certainly something that I've heard in the past. But I think that it resonates with me, and it might resonate with a lot of other people. And so I would love to begin our conversation there. What are just sort of the fundamental physiological differences sort of between men and women that in some regard make women special, you know, because there are definitely areas where uh, they're more advanced, so to say, than their male counterpart? Yeah, well, when we look at sex differences from birth, right, we know that there are inherent morphological differences that come out. So we know that women have smaller hearts, smaller lungs. They have lower oxygen carrying capacity because they have less hemoglobin. They have differences in their hip and shoulder angles. They also have a, a difference in their center of gravity. And even metabolically, they're different in the fact that women are born with more protein in the mitochondria to be able to use free fatty acids. And then 
when we get into puberty and we have the exposure or the epigenetic changes that come with the exposure to estrogen progesterone, this is where a lot of people think, oh, there's differences between men and women because now women have a menstrual cycle or have estrogen and progesterone and men have testosterone and that's where the divergence takes place. But there's actually two separate aspects. We have the sex differences that come from being XX versus XY. And then we have the overlay of hormones. So even when those hormones disappear, we still have inherent sex differences. So this is, again, the morphological. And then we look at metabolic aspects where women will clear through blood sugar a lot faster and then tap into fatty acid and not so much muscle glycogen usage. So this is where we look at carbohydrate usage during exercise, why women tend to have more GI distress when they're trying to find general guidelines. So there are small little inherent factors that can impede women's performance because we have these sex differences that haven't really been addressed when we're looking at protocols, we're looking at guidelines. And so I think that that's a really interesting point that you sort of ended on where there might be lacking the depth of research for females and for female athletes in particular, as compared to men, you know, one, why is that? And what can we do to change it? And then all the things that we talk about today, is this knowledge research-based or is it anecdotal? So what we'll talk about today is research-based. The depth of research in sports science is not as much as we would like it to be. There's been a big push in about past four-ish years to really go after female athlete, looking at proper methodology, accounting for hormone perturbations. So there's been some really good recent research that's come out that has not yet been implemented into protocols and guidelines. But I'll talk about that as we go. When we look at why this happens, we have to look at the cultural aspects of what it means to be a woman versus a man in our culture. So if you're looking all the way back to like the early religious days where women were told they couldn't be in the community when they had their period or they had to go hide and that women were taken from the rib of Adam. So there's all these discrepancies that come through the cultural and historical ideas of what it means to be a woman. Then we get to more modern times and there wasn't until after World War II when women were entering the workforce that now they're like, okay, we can be a force. But in the same breath of that, we have someone like JFK who is saying, we want women to contribute to society, yet we don't want them to be taken away from their primary responsibility, which is in the home. So although he was trying to push women out into the workforce, there was still this backlash that women were not equal to men. Then when you take it into the sporting concept, you think about what it means to be successful in sport. You attribute a lot of the male qualities of aggression, of power, of speed, of strength, but no fallibilities. So when a woman comes into the sporting world or comes into the research world that is still male-oriented and we have the male lens of research, they can't show fallibility. So this is where menstrual cycle is not accounted for. Hormone perturbations are not accounted for. There is language misuse around the recruitment of women where it's very masculinized and a little bit off-putting for women to participate. So they feel like they shouldn't participate because they won't contribute enough. Or their data is just washed out with men, where their data is a little bit of an anomaly, so that gets thrown out, or it just gets incorporated when they're in a low hormone phase, the same as men. So you're not really teasing out sex differences. You're not really teasing out what happens to a woman when she has an elevation in estrogen and progesterone. Rebecca Rush is one of the top cyclists around, and she's as tough as they come, having completed the Iditarod on a bike. 
Yet even she has felt the impact of the masculinization of sports. Here's what she did to help women feel welcome. Well, I did launch early in my cycling career. I launched what I called the SRAM Gold Rush Tour. And this launched off of one of my first years at Sea Otter as a pro athlete with SRAM as a sponsor. I was too intimidated to go into the SRAM booth and ask them for some maintenance on my bike because I didn't really understand everything about my bike. And I was kind of, you know, I was too intimidated to go in. There was a line, a huge line of guys, all male mechanics. And I sort of... I was like, man, if I'm a pro athlete sponsored by them and I'm intimidated to go into the booth, something's wrong. And I'm not putting any shade on SRAM. That's just how the industry was. And so I went to the founders of SRAM and said, this is how I feel. And they just basically said, well, what do you want to do about it? And I said, I don't know. We need to make it less intimidating for women. And so that's where they actually got behind me and funded and let me design what I did for eight years was the SRAM Gold Rush Tour. And it was just a series of free rides, education. And it started at Sea Otter where we'd have a ladies lounge and women could just come in and ask questions of all the pros and talk to us and go on a bike ride. And that was, you know, the first foray into just opening the door. You know, women just weren't seeing having a place to gather. And now, you know, many years later, you see women's groups all over the place, which is awesome. And what happened in those gatherings, you know, I went around the country and just had free, basically did a bunch of free clinics, Ram Golders tour. And what happened is these women be like, ah, I wish there was something like that in my town. I wish, you know, can you come to Albuquerque? And I'll be like, well, I can't come to Albuquerque, but you should start something. And I had women come back years later. And they're like, I started a group with my local bike club. And so really I was just this little bit of a catalyst for women and girls who were ready to do their own thing. And that was pretty cool. So that was one thing I did that I was, I'm pretty proud of because it it definitely made a difference. Um, and I did some local events here with young girls, you know, that was sort of a precursor to the Idaho NICA league. And now those girls, you know, one of them's a pro rider and, you know, um, a pro downhiller. And I remember teaching her to ride. And so just kind of share it. It all goes around with sharing the knowledge that you have, but making something welcoming and accessible. So it doesn't feel intimidating. I think is key for, for any group, whether, whether it's women or people of color, or it it doesn't matter. People just want to feel like they're not going to be laughed at and they're going to be welcomed and, you know, that they can ask questions, even if they seem like stupid questions. So when we're looking at the guidelines and protocols and testing protocols, everything from FTP, VO2 max, lactate threshold, ventilatory threshold, and we look at guidelines of carbohydrate and protein intake, all of this is based on male data that's then been generalized to women. So now we have this pushback and we're saying, hey, wait, we look at this research and, for example, the guidelines on carbohydrate intake for women. In that specific position stand, there's over 160 articles that are cited, scientific articles that are cited. But of those 160, there's only 16 that reference women and none of them have to do with carbohydrate intake has to do with iron deficiency, it has to do with low energy availability, but nothing guides what should women have to be successful in endurance sport with regards to carbohydrate intake. So these are the things that are now starting to be addressed. And these are the things that women are like, wait a second, I'm not doing well on the 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. Why not? Well, because your system isn't designed to absorb that. And so now with this upsurgence and push for female research everywhere from 
cell culture models have to include female cells all the way up to whole systems have to include women and account for menstrual cycle or other hormone profiles. We're starting to see some really good robust research coming out to show that the protocols and the guidelines should be different for women. So I'm really interested in this because you look at sports nutrition right now, it is all about carbohydrates. Like you look at the work of Dr. Eukendrup and it's we got to figure out how to cram more into you than your body can normally handle because the more carbohydrates you can get, the better. But you're saying that's not necessarily what's best for women. So what would be your recommendation? You know, for example, this is great. We're now seeing grand tours for women. Tour de France is going on right now. The men are cramming in as much carbohydrates as they can at the race. What would their strategy be? So for women, it depends on the hormone profile. So if we're looking at things like carbo-loading, we know it doesn't work for women. Primarily because in the high hormone phase after ovulation, the menstrual cycle, estrogen progesterone's job is to take carbohydrate and protein and shove it into the endometrial lining. So when women are like, oh, I'm carbo-loading, in fact, that carbohydrate is going to create glycogen stores in the endometrial lining, not in the liver and the muscle. And when we look at fueling, how the body fuels during endurance exercise in that high hormone state... This is where women clear blood sugar quickly and then go into more free fatty acid and amino acid utilization. So if you're looking at high intakes of carbohydrate during that phase, it sits in the gut because the body's like, I I can't handle this much. I have a slower gastric emptying rate. I'm more sensitive to carbohydrate. I can't absorb as much, especially if it's fructose-based. So when you're seeing girls and women who are trying to put in a lot of carbohydrate in the moment, this is where they start hitting the wall, they start getting a lot of GI distress. So we look specifically at let's increase total carbohydrate intake in the meals because this is how your body is going to have more carbohydrate availability and this is how we can tap into it. So then during exercise, you're not going on necessary grams of carbohydrate per hour. We're looking more at calories. Okay, how many calories? And it depends on workload and, and again, the hormonal factor. So if we're in the high hormone phase and the calories per hour, there's more coming from carbohydrate. If we're in the low hormone phase, the body does tap into more liver and muscle glycogen. So you have a little bit more carbohydrate available for keeping blood glucose elevated. But we know that you go through that more rapidly. So in that particular phase, the low hormone phase, we want more carbohydrate with protein because the default when we start getting too low in carbohydrate is to burn through amino acids and then get into free fatty acid use. So we have to understand where the woman is in her hormone profile to be able to be more prescriptive in what they need when we're talking about the elite level. In the more age group level, it's more of a fitness dependent. So if your body is used to using more carbohydrate, then you're going to be okay if you're using that as long as you're attenuating GI distress. But the fitter you get, the more we need to be in tune with where you are. Are you on an oral contraceptive pill? Are you using an IUD? Are you naturally cycling? Are you amenorrheic? So all of these things can actually factor into what you need to use during your race or how you're recovering. What is your fueling strategy? And we also know that nutrient timing for women is so much more important than men. And this comes from the hypothalamus, reading the nutrition density and nutrition availability in women versus men. Stacy, I would love to keep going along that age group thread that you started to bring out there and work through different stages of life and sort of the various considerations that coaches, both male or female, should have while they're working with female athletes. So we started off a little bit with this elite sort of cyclist, and to me that brings to mind maybe more of a younger age group. So 
when a female athlete is in her 20s, what, what major considerations do we have for that athlete to make sure that, say, menstrual cycle health is good, you know, contraceptive use, other factors, things like that? What are we thinking about? Yeah. So if I layer it, if we look at someone who's in their 20s to 30s, and we call that the reproductive or the premenopausal years, the biggest thing that women don't do is they don't eat enough because they're following trendy diets or they're so stressed they forget to eat and they fall into low energy availability. And that's been you know coming out a lot in the news with a lot of athletes this particular Olympic cycle who couldn't hold on for that last year because of the five year instead of the four year. And when we look at low energy availability, it is the fact that they're not timing their food appropriately around training and racing, or they're purposely trying to lose weight. So I'll work with elite athletes and they're like, on my recovery day, I'm having 1,100 or 1,200 calories a day. And that's not even enough to subsist lying on the couch watching Netflix, let alone recover, right? So the big rock there is really making sure that people are eating enough to support their training. And the other thing is in their early 20s, the body's still growing and developing depending on what's happened in their teens. So there's still an increase in the amount of, of nutrition they need. And if we are taking care of those baseline needs, then we don't have an interference in endocrine health. But when we're in a low energy state, we start to see missteps in the menstrual cycle. So the reason why the menstrual cycle is so important to have and to track is you can start seeing when there is a misstep of energy intake in the bleed pattern. So initially people are like, oh, I lost my period and I haven't had it for three years. And then they're clinically diagnosed with amenorrhea and falling into relative energy deficiency in sport. But you can back it up earlier. So if you're looking at a woman who's naturally cycling and her cycle length might be anywhere from 25 to 40 days, that length might stay. But instead of bleeding for seven days, now all of a sudden she's spotting and bleeding for maybe three or four days and it starts dropping off even more. So that's the first sign that there's too much stress. There's not enough nutrition to support what she's doing from a health standpoint. And then the hypothalamus is stepping in and going, wait a second, we don't have enough nutrition coming in, so we need to downregulate everything. We need to conserve thyroid. So I'm downregulating thyroid function. I'm downregulating resting metabolic rate. I'm increasing fat stores. I'm decreasing energy expenditure from resting muscle. So there are all these nuances that start to downregulate. So we'll see this in women who kind of flatline in their performance. They might start putting on some belly fat. And unfortunately, the automatic response for that is, I'm going to eat less and train more. So when we're talking to coaches, it's it's really important to understand that women shouldn't be doing fasted training. They do better in a fed state. Again, it has to do with the hypothalamus having two areas instead of one, two areas for women of kisspeptin neurons instead of one for men. And the fact that when we eat before we train, we are encouraging the body to maintain lean mass as well as recover. But if we go in as a fasted state and trying to do metabolic flexibility or increase fatty acid use, women are already there. So it becomes a very big stress on the body and we have this backlash. So for those reproductive years, that's the big rock. There's so many women who don't eat enough and they don't eat in and around their training. And we aren't algorithms. So it's not like you have to eat the same amount every day. It fluctuates because you might race really hard on Saturday. You're not that hungry on Sunday and it's kind of a recovery day. And then Monday comes and you're ravenous, but you're like, wait, I didn't do a big training day. It's not my recovery day. So they cut back. And that's not the thing to do. So I remember when I was back up in Canada training at the center, several of the women that were there who were racing professionally, racing at the, the top level, it was just assumed that they, they would have amenorrhea. They just kind of went, yeah, of course I'm going to lose my period. Yeah, uh, I'm getting the sense that you don't think that's 
the way they should be thinking. Not at all. And again, that comes back to the cultural idea that you don't talk about your menstrual cycle. And if you don't have it, then you're exhibiting the fact that you're, quote, not fallible. So that you are exhibiting more of the masculine qualities. But from a health standpoint, which then comes into a performance standpoint, you're right on the edge of breaking. And we see this when you're amenorrheic for a bit of time, you're having more soft tissue injuries, you're having cardiovascular issues with rushing heart rates, you're not able to fuel for the top end efforts because your body just can't get there. And again, it has to do with all the down regulation aspect. I was in a conference and one of the elite running coaches stood up and said, but we know our athletes are ready to peak and perform when they're amenorrheic. And we're like, what, are you kidding? And it just is because it's so ingrained in the sport culture that it's normal. But we're seeing now with more education around low energy availability and menstrual cycle dysfunction that people are like, I'm gonna use my menstrual cycle and if there's dysfunction, then there's time to fix it so that I can stepwise increase my performance because it means it's less time out from injury, from illness, from other things that add up to people not being able to train or perform. So you brought up that timing is much more important for women than for men. So what would be, if, if we had a, a woman in her 20s or 30s, what would be your suggestions for timing of food, of fueling? Yeah, so making sure that you're eating something before you go out. And if you're someone who has to get up early and train, you're like, I can't eat, I'm not hungry. I'm not saying a full meal. It could be a piece of toast, a half a banana, a protein fortified cold brew. So something to bring blood sugar up. And then you have your real meal within 30 to 45 minutes. Because we know women return to baseline blood glucose levels within an hour, where men have three to 18 hours. So within that hour, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to do to ensure recovery and repair. Because if you don't, you stay in a catabolic state or a breakdown state. And the first thing to go is lean mass. So if you're looking to maintain power and speed, you need to make sure that you're eating within that 30 or 45 minute point. And it's protein with carbohydrate. So if we're looking at why protein is a priority, because we need amino acids circulating, having a higher level of amino acids circulating in the female body for many of the feedback mechanisms for muscle protein synthesis and for equating metabolic equivalency. So bringing your metabolism back down to baseline without signal to put on body fat. So we look at the two to one ratio of carbohydrate to protein and making sure that the protein is high quality. It doesn't matter if it's plant-based, doesn't matter if it's animal-based, just making sure you have really good high quality leucine with essential amino acids around it. And if you're taking care of that timing window and you're someone who's like, I still need to budge body composition, I need to lose a bit of weight still, you can afford then to take away slight amount of calories in the afternoon, preferably in the evening away from bed, because you've taken care of the stress in the moment of exercise and training. So your body's like, there's still adequate nutrition coming in, so I can adapt to this. I can keep metabolism up. I can have endocrine function. And then when you have that slight calorie deficit in the evening, preferably before bed, you end up in a better sleep pattern. So there's ways of manipulating diet and, and composition without actually impacting negatively on the body, the endocrine system, and performance. So it's tightening up and saying, hey, I'm very stressed from exercise because exercise is a stress itself. It is a fasted state. So I need to fuel for what I'm doing so the body knows that I don't need to stay in the stress state. It can actually overcome that stress. And that's how we get fitter. So that's really interesting because I actually just had a conversation yesterday with a, a gentleman on our forum 
talking about that window, that one-hour window after exercise, and he was asking how critical it is, and the fact that there's a lot of research saying, yeah, if you have an event later that day, it's critical, but 24 hours later, it doesn't make a difference. But you're saying that's not the case with women, that that hour afterwards is really important to prevent going into a catabolic state. Yes, exactly. And it's holding that catabolic state after training that your body will perceive as low energy availability, even if you're eating adequate calories. Because women tend to book in calories, you know, so they'll like eat something in the morning, they might do the noon ride, and then they might have a snack and then they have a lot for dinner. So they're booking their calories at either end of the day. But their body's like, I need fuel in the day around training. So their body's in that breakdown state. And that signals to the brain that there isn't enough nutrition and you get into this cascade of low energy availability. We've done some research on recreational female athletes. We know that over 60% of them are in a low energy state. And it's not necessarily intentional. It's the mistiming of food. So their body is in this low energy state and doesn't adapt well. So it's not changing the amount of calories they're eating for the day. It's just timing. Timing, exactly. And a lot of, uh, I know a lot of endurance athletes that finish a hard workout and go, I'm not going to eat because I'm trying to drop weight. Yeah. Or I'm going to have coffee to increase the burn. Yes. And it's like, no, (laughs) you're increasing cortisol and you're signaling your body to break down your lean mass. Which is the exact opposite of what you want. Exactly. So if we look at trendy diets, like most of them out there, you have the keto, the low-carb, high-fat, intermittent fasting. So what's really important to understand is that the data from these diets have come from initially a clinical population of obese, sedentary men trying to lose weight for surgery or metabolic control. And then they crossed over into the fitness world and it became this thing. Oh, yeah, if I do keto or I do low-carb, high fat or you know I'm I'm doing intermittent fasting and doing my training in the in the fasted window it's going to increase my body's metabolic efficiency it's going to increase my ability to burn fat and use fatty acids again male data so when we look at the outcome for women it's not the same we see there's an increase in sympathetic drive instead of symp- uh, parasympathetic drive so women tend to get tired but wired when they're following these diets there is an increase in insulin resistance instead of better blood glucose control. We also see things like a difference in telomere length, but not in a positive way for women. Exercise in itself has better longevity data for women with regards to how it stresses the body to improve overall health and stimulus. And when we're looking at what these trendy diets do is it puts those women smack dab in where we don't want them, in that low energy state or the body perceiving it to be in a low energy state. And again, as I said earlier, we know from hard, good research that women do better in a fed state, even in resistance training days. If women are having around 90 calories of protein before their resistance training, they end up with a greater amount of post-exercise energy expenditure and a raised metabolic rate than if they were to just do nothing or have a carbohydrate bolus, which is not the same for men. Because men, like I said earlier, they go through liver muscle glycogen and they don't tap so much into fatty acid use until they are really, really low. And that's why fasted training or ketogenic or low-carb, high-fat type diets work for men. But for women, we're already at our maximum ability to burn fatty acids. We don't need to learn that from those sex differences at birth. So women need carbohydrate. They need to look at fueling for what they are doing and the timing, super important. When we bring oral contraceptive or contraceptives into it, it's a little bit different yet again as compared to the natural menstrual cycle because now we have a downregulation of our natural hormones. 
And the exogenous hormones or the hormones from the pill is what is creating that metabolic control and stimulating the hypothalamus. And it's not the same because the estrogen receptor sites are not being stimulated the same. We don't know from a stress standpoint if the body's adapting or not because we don't have a real bleed on an oral contraceptive pill. Or if you're on an IUD, you might not have a bleed at all. So it's really hard to keep track if you are in a low energy state or not. We're looking at training practices around the oral contraceptive pill. We know the first five days of the active pill, women are really robust to stress and they can take on high loads. But for the middle two weeks of the active pill, for each subsequent day they are on it, their recovery suffers more and more because you're having this stepwise increase of these hormones and, uh, uh, and they're kind of saturating. Then when you get to the second week of the sugar pill week or the withdrawal bleed, which is not a true period, it's just a withdrawal bleed from those pills, the body's more resilient. But it takes two days of those sugar pills for everything to wash out. So when you're looking at training stress, it's bookending the active pills with high load and in the middle being very cognizant that you can overstress your athlete. And nutrition's the same thing. It's like you're really good with carbohydrate on either side of the active pill, but you need more protein and more overall calories in that high-stress, high-hormone phase. So in the past, you've talked to us about the, the two phases of the menstrual cycle and how your body is in very different states in the, those two phases. How does the oral contraceptive pill impact those two phases? Well, they don't. Like You have three weeks of an active pill, and that's a high-hormone state. And then the sugar pill week, where people have a withdrawal bleed, it's still not a low-hormone phase because your body rebounds after day two of those pills to bring estrogen up, almost the same level as the first trimester pregnancy. So your body's never really in a low state. It does reset and its baseline changes, so your responses are a bit different. But when we're looking at adaptation, one of the first things I ask my athletes, if, if they're on an oral contraceptive pill, can they get off it, or are they on it for health reasons like PCOS or endometriosis? Because if they're not on it for health reasons, I want them to come off it so we can see how their body responds and how much more they can adapt to training and training stress. So before we move on from 20 and 30-year-olds, uh, let's talk to the coach now. So we yep. have a coach that's working with a, a woman in, those, in that age range. What should that coach be focusing on? What should that coach be talking to their athlete about? So when we're looking at the actual training loads, you can do some undulating periodization just the same as you would with a man. But the big rock for the coach to be able to talk to their athlete about in these reproductive years is menstrual cycle status. Having them track it using an app or putting it in training peaks to understand not only the bleed pattern and how long the cycle is, but starting to understand the nuances of maybe on day 23 of every cycle, my athlete feels really flat. So I'm not going to put in a test day. I'm not going to put in intervals. It's just something that happens. We know this. So you're able to individualize and personalize the training within the major undulation program to really work with the female physiology. The one thing I want everyone to know is there is a difference between training and performance. So there is no actual difference between menstrual cycle phase and performance. You can go and nail your PR, your best race on any day of the menstrual cycle. Because again, it's the psychological that supersedes the physiological and the training that gets you there. But when we're looking at training, we can use the perturbations 
of those hormones to our advantage, knowing that the body's really resilient to stress in the low hormone phase. And then the high hormone phase is a bit more steady state. And then about the five days before the period starts, we have a really low resilience to stress. We see it in changes in the immune system, in motivation, neurotransmitters. So if you're understanding that general pattern, and then you can see where your athlete does really well in training days and see that patterning, you can really hone in on those ergogenic aspects of the menstrual cycle. If your athlete is on an IUD, you can still do the same thing because after six months of insertion of using a progestin like the Marina, your athlete will start to ovulate again. So you can use basal body temperature to dial in those, those phases. But again, when you're on the oral contraceptive pill, it's completely different. You can still have them track, so you can see mood, but it's not as cyclical or as obvious a patterning because of the way the perturbations of the OC works with regards to daily pulse and how the woman responds to recovery. Because for each week that she's on the pill, you get worse and worse in your recovery. So it's something to understand that the OC is a different type of cycle than naturally cycling. And for you to understand how that is with your athlete, then you can start really dialing in things to improve the hard days and really allow them to recover on the days their body's like, I need to recover. It is important for coaches, particularly male coaches, to understand the unique needs of their female athletes. Let's hear from experienced coach Daniel Metheny and what he's made sure to focus on. I have coached women, both junior and, I guess, masters or senior women. And in the past, I didn't approach them that much differently besides trying to at least be aware of their their cycles and be cognizant of that. I can't say that I've put in the valid amount of background research to understand it, even though, you know, listening to Stacey Sims and I have her, you know, roar book behind me and a plethora of notes from the continuing education that I've been to that I tried to apply basically to know when to apply intensity, when it's better to go low intensity based on their cycles. But I haven't, can't say I have an exact model that I use for that. And it's hard because of the juniors. That's not one thing that's easy to talk to with juniors and kind of gets into this like, awkward area, even though that's, you know, that's what coaches have to do is try to like dig in and say, you know, it's okay to discuss this because it's important for your progression. But, uh, typically that's, that's been my approach is want to learn more about it and be better. Um, I don't currently coach a lot of women and usually it's through a club platform to where it's most people are, I try to give if then scenarios, if you're feeling this way, don't disregard it and do the other, like resort to an aerobic ride versus intensity or listen to your body a little bit more. So, and that's been my coaching mentality is try to give people the tools to not need to maybe on call basically, like, because that's not coaches don't get paid enough like doctors do to be that way. So I try to give them the tools to where they can understand and make those real time calls. And the same thing with women of like, you, you can't just blow your cycles to the to the back and say, I'm going to train this hard, irrelevant. There's certain times you need to be cognizant of what's going on inside because your hormones are changing. Hi, listeners. It's Dee Dee Barry and Julie Young. And we've been hard at work creating a new podcast featuring content for female endurance athletes and coaches of female endurance athletes. We're thrilled to announce an upcoming series from Fast Talk, Fast Talk Femme podcast. Listen for our first episodes coming this fall. Join the Fast Talk Labs newsletter for more information. Stacy, this conversation about tracking the menstrual cycle is super interesting. And pardon this question or the wording of it, is there an app for that? 
how how do we as an outside third party have a sense of what's going on to track not just one, but maybe multiple athletes on a roster? Yeah. So full disclosure, I've been involved in wild AI since it really hit the market. And the reason for that is it uses artificial intelligence and the algorithms are written for women in a female environment. If you're looking at something like Garmin or Aura Ring, even Whoop, all those algorithms are based on male vision and male idea of what it is to be in a female environment. And they don't use artificial intelligence to learn the woman's cycle and to be able to feed back information specific to her about the days of her cycle. If you're looking at using Wild AI, they have a coaching app too. So you can have all your athletes on the same platform and they're logging into their phone and keeping track. And then it comes up on your coaching dashboard and it also integrates with so many of the other wearables. So you can have heart rate variability pulled in, you can have sleep data pulled in, so you get a complete picture of the metrics. This also eliminates sometimes that tedious conversation or uncomfortable conversation about menstrual cycle status. Fitter Woman is another one as well, where they have a really good coaching platform where the coaches can log in and see where their athletes are, who's in what phase, and be able to understand what's going on with their athletes. For the listeners, I, I just want you to know that was not me putting out an opportunity for uh, Stacy to plug her involvement with Wild AI. I honestly didn't know she was involved with that. Just a, a recognition that something like that seems really important for working with female athletes. Yeah, which is why I put the disclosure. <laughs> no, but it, it's an important thing. because I've worked with a, a lot of women, and some women... Absolutely no embarrassment. When we're on the phone, they're telling me exactly where, where they're at and what's going on. Others don't want to discuss it, but might be willing to, to put in an app, whereas as a coach, you can see where they're at in their cycle and, and what's going on. Yeah, and I know that there is hesitancy now in the current political environment about using menstrual cycle tracking apps. But Fitter Woman and Wild are European-based companies, and so there is no legal hold from the U.S. over there. And they all are very anonymous and you can put in an anonymous note. So all of your data is just you on your phone and you can delete it at any point. So they're, they are very aware of the political environment. And I wanted to share that because of all of the conversations around it that have been coming out. So something I've always wanted to ask you about, because I was having a conversation with Melanie McQuaid right before we had her on the show. And I'm guessing you two probably raced each other a little bit at yep. some point, didn't you? Yeah. Yep. So we actually had this whole conversation and forgive me, Melanie, for bringing this up with, without talking to you beforehand, but you, you did say you, you wanted to have this conversation at some point. She didn't like the idea of basing training around menstrual cycle because her comment was, my races are going to be when they're at and I can't control that. So I need to learn how to train through. Mm-hmm the different phases. Yeah. And that's so what I mean. Like there's no difference between menstrual cycle phase for performance. So we're leveraging hormones for training. Unfortunately, we have that negative self-talk as women, like, oh, um, my A race is going to come two days before my period comes. And I always feel super flat on that day. I get these kind of emails all the time. I'm like, well, what kind of flat? Because we know that we can put some protein in or some branched-chain amino acids in that helps with central nervous system fatigue and helps you fire. We can increase hydration. We can increase your daily carbohydrate intake leading up to the race. And all of these things will minimize and level the playing field with regards to how the hormones are treating you. 
And when you implement that and see, oh yeah, this takes away the flatness, it gives that positive reaffirmation that you can nail that race. It's there's so much negative talk around the menstrual cycle and we see it ingrained in the culture of, ooh, it's that time of the month. And all of these negative jabs of, oh, when you're bleeding, you're a delicate flower. You shouldn't race on your period. When in actuality, that's when you should because your body is so physiologically primed to take on stress. So it's that re-education and changing the language around it and not having things like girls do this and girls can't throw and girls can't perform on their period. It's trying to get people to understand that we have a menstrual cycle for a reason, and none of us would be here if it didn't exist, for one. And two, we have the ability to be very resilient and do whatever we want. It's not a hindrance. It's just part of our physiology. Understanding how the hormones affect us is great because then we can leverage them to our advantage. And also being aware of how they, they affect you from a mental standpoint gives you the opportunity to do something before you get to the race. So I've worked with many athletes who now have implemented that and they're like, I'm not afraid to race on any day. Matter of fact, I want my period to come on race day because it's my superpower. So it's a lot of education around it and understanding that it's not negative. There's no negative point. It's cultural that we now perceive it as being negative, but we need to break that and be like, no, it gives us a really fantastic way of keeping track of women's health as well as their adherence and their adaptation and that they can actually go nail anything on any day. Stacy and Trevor, you know, as female athletes get into their 30s, what considerations are we having here? You know, I know a big one, that's, that's when my wife uh, was pregnant, you know, and so maybe we can start there around pregnancy and working with female athletes in that regard. Yeah, for sure. So when, well, in my experience, when women start to hit their 30s and they're still racing, they also have... The kind of in the back of their head, well, I'm in my 30s and I want to start having a family or think about having a family. And if they've had menstrual cycle irregularities or they've been on oral contraceptive pill and they're really concerned, like, well, what if I'm not fertile? Because it tends to, to come up a lot in the endurance space. And we do see women who have had bouts of amenorrhea and their hormones aren't quite right. So we start looking at well, let's dial down the volume and we can maintain the intensity. And again, dialing in the nutrition like we did in our 20s and our 30s to really make sure that we're fueling for it. Carbohydrate is very essential. And when you start getting that, then you get your luteinizing hormone pulse and fertility comes back. So it's never an issue of not being fertile. It is an issue of how are we addressing it and how long has an issue been going for the most part. Of course, there are exceptions, unfortunately. But when a woman becomes pregnant, there is so many, I guess, myths around being a pregnant athlete. You hear you shouldn't get your heart rate up above 140. I mean, when I was pregnant, I was told I shouldn't be riding a bike because, you know, what if I crash? I shouldn't run because I might shake the baby loose. Like all of those myths. And this is coming from physicians who should know better. Yeah. When we start to look at the research that's coming out on fetal development and aspects of better DNA for better health outcomes. Being really active and having times where the uterus is having restricted blood flow is actually super beneficial for the developing fetus because it creates a little bit of a stress environment so that the baby's learning how to deal with stress and the cells learn about metabolic stress as well. So it's really good for the development aspect. And when you have a bit of hypoxia, 
because of the blood flow diversion away from the central area to the working muscles. You enhance the vascular aspect of the placenta. So then after exercise, you have much better blood flow and nutrient exchange with the baby. So when you're looking at what are recommendations for active women, keep doing what you are doing because your body will tell you when you can't. Like most women can't go anaerobic because their body just doesn't let them. We know that we're looking at strength training and maintaining strength training all the way through is super beneficial because it helps through the birth and postpartum where you now have strength. You have less joint issues that come with increased laxin, relaxin. And when you're looking at the health of the baby as well, the more that they have that exercise stress, the more robust and healthy the baby is when it's born. So when we have specific guidelines of the heart rate and moderate intensity activity, again, it's for women who have not been active. They should start being active, of course, because we know all this great literature about helping babies develop well. But if you are active, it doesn't mean stop and slow down. There are, again, exceptions. If you have medical issues, then yes, for sure. But with all the misinformation out there, I want to reassure pregnant women that you don't have to stop. You just keep doing what you're doing. I was riding my bike up big hills the day before I gave birth, and she was fine. It was great. So, so the question is, did he get a PR? Not up that hill because it was freaking hot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually really interesting because, I mean, we're a training science show. So it, this is all about adaptation, adaptation, adaptation. And that never occurred to me that you can have beneficial adaptations in the placenta. I would have thought... The fetus is going to grow the way the fetus is going to grow and and you don't really have much control over that. But you're saying exercise and other things can actually produce adaptations that you want. Exactly. Exactly. That's fascinating. Now, Stacy, there are physical changes that are happening throughout pregnancy for the female athlete. At the very least, some weight gain, maybe some postural changes. Are there considerations for activity, maybe just to avoid any musculoskeletal issues, or is it, for the most part, keep on trucking like you normally would? For cyclists looking at bike fit, you're going to have to change the bike fit because the, the hip and the sit bones are widening and your center gravity is definitely off. So in order to be comfortable and not have soft tissue injuries, you do have to look at bike fit. More upright, you can look at some of the gravel bikes or some of the hybrids that are more upright, and you're not going to be racing when you're pregnant. Definitely not. I mean, you can in the early stages when you're not showing or you don't have all the the changes, but once you are visibly pregnant, then I always go back to what my husband had said. He's like, I don't care if you feel like you can keep racing and your body says you can keep racing. One, you shouldn't be going anaerobic. And two, I don't want you to crash because that's the health of my baby. So just being conscious about that. That's not science. That's, you know, anecdotal. Right. But so when we're looking at bike fit, it's definitely changing that. If we're looking at running, you can look at the different mechanics and running shoes. You might have to change running shoes because your stance is different. But otherwise, it's just keep going. Just keep on trucking. Keep on trucking. It's pretty good advice. Hmm. Good recommendation. I mean, we've done bike fit episodes. We've talked about the with, with Dr. Pruitt about mm -hmm. keeping the knees healthy. And he talks about should get refit every year because your body's constantly changing. Your body's going through a lot of changes when you're pregnant. So 
Yeah, and that's one of the things that I think women don't realize after pregnancy, how much their mechanics have changed. Vaginal versus C-section, that definitely changes things as well. So it's super important, like you might end up needing a wider seat, even though you never really thought about it. You're like, wait, I haven't changed that much, but your sit bones have. So it's important to get a bike fit after you can get back on your bike after birth. Now, Stacy, you mentioned that the body will really tell the female athlete maybe when they're doing too much or how much they can do and that listening to that is important. Can we expect, though, because of the health of the fetus and, and everything the mother's body is doing to support that, are there adaptive or recovery changes for the female athlete when exercising? Do they need increased recovery, perhaps between workouts or again, really no different, maybe as long as they are addressing any low energy availability or, or issues thereof? Yeah. I mean, you have to have the eye that you're increasing total blood volume and your nutrient needs are, are increasing. So you have to maintain the hydration, like really stay on top of hydration because your body's like, I need more blood across the board, not only for the mom, but for also for the developing baby. Nutrition is important, not eating for two but it's like an extra 150 calories a day for the first trimester, extra 200 and some for the second trimester, and only 300 to 350 for the last. So it's not a massive amount, but it should come from good carbohydrate and protein. So having that eye of just increasing the small amounts. Women will be more fatigued. They might be nauseous. So really paying attention and being intuitive about what you can do and, and when you should slow down. And that's part of listening to like, what your body's telling you you can do. From a recovery standpoint, you're in a faster metabolic rate. So if we're looking at pregnancy, it's equivalent to doing adventure racing for 10 days. So your body's now up to a baseline of anywhere to three to 4,000 calories a day with everything. So it's a metabolic stress. So yes, you need to eat more, but your core temperature is going to be elevated. So you should take an eye to how am I bringing my core temperature down, especially if you're exercising in the summer. Because if you maintain a high core temperature, then it's reducing blood flow post-exercise to the baby as well as your muscles. So bringing core temperature down by taking a cool shower, not cold, could be two to four minutes of around 60 degrees. So it's the cold on, on the shower tap just to change blood flow changes to put more blood central. So you have better adaptations with blood flow. So it's just small little things that actually help with recovery as well as encouraging the health and development of the baby. So going back to the coach, yeah, obviously this is going to be, uh, things are going to change for the coach as well. And I know, I know a lot of women athletes, they want to keep their routine. They want to keep things going with the coach, but goals are going to change. Focus is going to change. How does a coach help a female athlete through this phase when they're, when they're going through a pregnancy? Initially, it's reducing the intensity because the first 12 weeks, you might get hit with nausea and morning sickness, which is actually all day sickness. And it's precarious with regards to if, if the pregnancy is going to be viable or not. So the first 12 weeks is being very cautious of intensity. After that, you can prescribe intensity, but again, it's going to be based on RP and, and what the woman's body can do. Having the reset of goals of maintenance, of you know trying to stay fit and putting an emphasis on resistance training as well. Women are in a catabolic state for themselves because if they're not eating enough or they're highly stressed, the nutrition that they consume goes directly to the baby. It's the priority. So for doing resistance training, we're also getting the signaling to maintain our lean mass and strength. So we're doing that modifying volume and intensity. Then on the other side of birth, 
she's not starting from really far down below. She can pick it up. This is why you see a lot of athletes who come back racing strong and hard afterwards is because they've had this boost of blood volume. They've had this boost of neurotransmitter changes and they've maintained fitness based on what their body can do so that when they are okay to go back to proper training, that they actually feel like they're fitter than before pregnancy. So it's tying in with the coach to have those conversations with their athletes and say, okay, what do you feel like you can do this week? How are you feeling? What's nausea? What's not? And there's the window of, they say the honeymoon window of the second trimester where the woman isn't too big from the baby growing. So her center of gravity isn't so far off and she feels amazing. So this is where you can leverage some of that training to increase the fitness aspect as she's going into the later stages of her pregnancy. So it, there's a lot of conversation that goes in, but it's, you know, women want the structure. They want to know they get up and they do this, or they have the option to sleep in. A lot of runners have switched from land-based running to water running in the summer. So they can maintain fitness and it feels good with the buoyancy, but they can also get a bit of intensity. So there's those kinds of conversations to have as well. Glad you brought up the nutrition side because that's so critical. As you said, the baby gets priority. So a lot of women, when they're pregnant, if they're not eating well, if they're not getting enough nutrient density, the child might be fine, but they, they'll actually produce serious nutritional deficiencies for themselves. Yeah. So the side story is I had really bad nausea and vomiting throughout my entire pregnancy. And I found out I was pregnant two weeks before I raced Maui Worlds. And so I started at race weight, which was around 59 kilos, and I got out of pregnancy at 51. But she was seven pounds, three born. So that just tells you how much a baby will take because yep. I couldn't eat enough. I was too sick to eat enough. So it, it's very real. And the people are like, oh my gosh, you're so skinny. He's like, I didn't choose this way. If I had been able to, I wouldn't have chosen you this. Have, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it's opposite from most of the stories. Most people are like, how do I get rid of this pregnancy weight? It's like, well, there are two sides to every story. Yeah. But basically sound nutrition across the board. Well, Stacy, I want to use that to transition to postpartum. Let's get this baby out into the world yeah. and talk about what happens to the female athlete body and, and what should we be aware of as they're returning to sport, returning to training. Yeah, so they'll say you need a, a six-week check from your doctor. And it is really important because you can have things like prolapse after birth, you can have soft tissue that still hasn't realigned. You have pelvic floor issues, of course, that might need to be addressed. And early stages, I always tell women who have given a vaginal birth to seek out a pelvic floor specialist so that, you know, a physiotherapist or a physical therapist who understands pelvic floor health. Because the unfortunate thing with female athletes, they could have really strong pelvic floor muscles, but they can't activate them properly. So they either spasm or they're um, strong but weak at the same time because they're not innervated because of the push through the vaginal delivery has disrupted all of that. So it's really important to get pelvic floor health sorted in that first time period. When you get clear to start training again, a lot of women are like, yeah, let's go. But remembering that your biomechanics have changed because of holding the baby, your center of gravity is still off. You're going to have to get a, uh, another bike fit and running shoe assessment, all of those things to make sure that you're not going to injure yourself. And it's slowly getting back into it your anaerobic capacity is going to come back quickly. But when you are thinking about anaerobic capacity and doing intervals, if you're breastfeeding, then you want to think about how am I timing that? So it, you can still do proper training and breastfeed. It's just knowing that you want to 
feed, pump, then do your intervals. So instead of like getting up and going, I'm going to go out and do this now, the timing is very different. And one of the other really big things postpartum is understanding you need a support network because there is a super, super high incidence of postpartum depression, especially in female athletes, because their whole life has changed. Like even if they wanted a kid, they don't understand the magnitude of the change. And you're close enough that you remember what your old life was, but now you're thrown into this new life of sleep deprivation. And it is a passing period, but understanding that it is good to have a support network and reach out, and it's not good to hold it all in because this is how really serious postpartum depression occurs. And you can't fight that with sport. A lot of women will dive back into sport and training, trying to alleviate that, but it doesn't go away and it can really become a significant problem. So reach out for that support network. So those are like the physiological comes back rather quickly after you get cleared and you don't have any ensuing complications from childbirth and you slowly get back into it just the same as you've had any kind of injury. But knowing that you have a boost of blood volume, you have a boost of pain tolerance, so you can start putting some hard training sessions in rather quickly. But really taking care of the mental health and understanding sleep deprivation is going to have a play into that. And then when you're six or eight months down the track, that's when you can really start planning. What am I going to do next? How am I arranging this around my new life? So it is a time period where when people are like, oh, I'm having a baby and I'm pregnant, it's not just the 10 months of pregnancy. It's actually a two-year period where you are not yourself. And when you know that you're not yourself, you're going through all these changes and postpartum is still a big part of that pregnancy aspect of healing from something like a, a massive vaginal birth or cesarean section, understanding the mental challenges that are coming, not only with sleep deprivation, but the new life, and then trying to put training into it. The training shouldn't be specific, just like it wasn't right before you gave birth, but using it as a way of starting to get fit again. And then in that six to eight month mark is when you really start planning to train appropriately for something you want to do. Proper bike fit is essential for female cyclists at any age. Let's hear Sage Roundtree share her thoughts on some of the important considerations for women. Off the cuff, thinking about physiological differences, thinking about, you know, even just like equipment differences of finding a saddle that fits a different pelvis. Because if you can't get comfortable in your first few rides, you're just going to say, screw this, I'm not doing it anymore. So I think that getting there, like for me, a cutout saddle made all the difference in the world. And then like once I had found the right cutout, it was gradually making it thinner and harder and thinner and harder. So it was kind of like it kind of went wide and then came back down again to a pretty minimalist saddle. Also just finding the right shorts to work with that saddle. So you don't have too much cushioning. I'm sure this is the same for men, but, but like too much cushioning is almost worse than not having enough. So it was finding that right balance so that I could be physically comfortable. Cause if you're not physically comfortable, it's just a horrible experience from start to finish. Also physiologically different is um, not just the pelvis, but the relationship between the, the pelvis and the knee, I guess what we call the Q angle, which can lead to um, some knee pain if you don't have like well-balanced strength through the hip and the quads. So making sure that you have uh, a good strength training routine or um, a good physical therapist to help you figure out like, all right, what is it going to take so that your knees are having a good experience when you're on the bike, especially if you're locked into the pedals. Those are the two that jump out at me apart from the obvious like, yeah, 
psychologically and physiologically, the guys are all like, yeah, we're out here. And, you know, if you're just getting started and you always feel like you're getting dropped off the back or you're getting condescended to, that's a, that's a negative uh, psychological experience. So I think we need to move on to that next phase when women start getting into their 40s and 50s. Yeah. So early 40s, women will start to kind of look and go, my training and nutrition isn't quite working for me. What's going on? And this is the time like, you know, super early 40s, 41, 42, 43, you're still going to be as if you were in your 30s, like nailing it really good, good power, good explosiveness. Adaptation is really good. But then when you get to your mid 40s, you're going to start feeling some changes going, hmm, i just not recovering how I should be. I'm putting on a little bit of extra belly fat. What's going on? And this is where a lot of the self-doubt starts to come. I'm not training hard enough. I'm not eating right. I'm too stressed. But really what's happening is there's a shift in estrogen-progesterone ratios because women are starting to enter perimenopause. And you're having more anovulatory cycles so that you don't have as much progesterone. You're having more estrogen dominance. And we start to see all these shifts. So if you're thinking about puberty and everyone talks about, oh my gosh, kids are going through puberty. It's a nightmare, a hormone nightmare. It's kind of the same thing, except now the hormones are dropping instead of coming up. So your body's been used to having exposure of estrogen progesterone in a cyclical pattern for 20 plus years. And now all of a sudden that cyclical pattern is changing. So every system of the body is being affected. We know that estrogen is like men's testosterone for women. It directly stimulates the myosin part of the myosin actin filaments. So when we start having a misstep in myosin integrity, we start having less of a strong muscle contraction and losing our power. We see that with estrogen and progesterone missteps, we have signaling to put on visceral body fat and more insulin resistance. So all of these things start to occur not really powerfully, but just enough for women to start questioning what's going on. I need to reassess or unfortunately, like I said earlier, the first answer is I need to eat less, train more, which is not what we should be doing. Because we're having these changes in these hormones, we need to look at what kind of external stress we can put on the body that will cause the body to adapt and respond as if these hormones were working for us still. So the biggest changes we start to see is about the five years before menopause, knowing that menopause is one point in time that marks 12 months on the calendar of no periods. After that is postmenopause, and the time period before that is perimenopause. So if we're looking at what we should be doing to stress the body, to support it how these hormones used to, we have to look at the type of training that we're doing and the nutrition. So if we look at that modern intensity, long, slow stuff, the we're seeing a greater amount of older women in ultra endurance, like ultra running, the 100 mile gravel races, all of the ultra endurance stuff, because that's where they naturally fall. We're starting to go slower. We're starting to become more endurant because that's where from sex differences, women naturally fall. But there's a whole bunch of women that don't want to do that. They don't want to quote age out. You don't have to. Because if we change the training to look at doing the very top end, like true sprint interval training or true high intensity interval training, not the F45, 45 minute body weight stuff, but actual hard sprint stuff and recovering from that. And then the 
endurance stuff is super, super easy. So it's the polarized training idea, dropping volume, maintaining intensity. This is how women progress in their power and their performance, even in endurance sport, especially in endurance sport. And the reason for that is we start to get epigenetic changes to maintain power within our muscle fibers. We're getting more recruitment. We're getting the signal for more fast twitch action, and we're not losing it, which is what we would do if we weren't changing our training. The other thing to remember is resistance training is super, super important because women lose their lean mass and they lose their bone density as these hormones start to shift because estrogen, like I said, is tightly tied to muscle integrity, muscle development, progesterone and estrogen both work together for bone mineral density. So when those ratios change and we start to lose it, we have to look at resistance training and plyometric work. So resistance training is heavy lifting. It is that three to five. So it's three to five exercises, three to five sets, three to five minutes recovery, not cardiovascular work. And it might take 30 minutes, but we're looking at heavy work. So by the last rep, you're really not finishing it because you can't. So it's true power training. This recruits more fibers. It increases the action of that neuromuscular connection. So you're maintaining the power. It's increasing the integrity of the myosin and telling the body, hey, we need myosin still, so let's keep going. And it also instigates that muscle protein synthesis response. With lean mass as well, we know that in the reproductive years, there are three pathways for muscle protein synthesis. One of them is IGF-1, which is tightly tied to estrogen. So when estrogen starts to drop off, we lose that pathway, or it's significantly attenuated, I should say. So the other two that we have is mechanical stress and amino acids. So we're doing the mechanical stress through high intensity work and resistance training. We have to follow it up with a very good dose of protein, around 40 grams, because women are now becoming more anabolically resistant, especially with muscle protein synthesis. So we need that higher level to instigate that response because we don't have estrogen. So it's looking at that nutrition timing that we've talked about, but it's changing it to increase the protein Carbohydrate comes down because we are more insulin resistant. In and around training, you can definitely have carbohydrate, which you should for sure. But the rest of the time, it's the eye to more fruit and veg to take care of gut microbiome and also address some of the insulin resistant aspect. Plyometrics, super important as well. If you have to choose between doing sprint interval training and plyometrics, plyometrics is the way to go because you're going to get epigenetic changes within the muscle that encourage the muscle to pull more carbohydrate in without insulin. But you also have multi-directional stress, which is what the bone needs to maintain bone density. So when we're looking at endurance athletes who are like, but I love my endurance, what do I do? We look at implementing quality, high intensity with resistance training during the week. And then on the weekend, we might have not group rides because that ends up falling into that moderate intensity, but really controlled, low intensity, soul food type exercise. So you're not giving it up. You're just switching it where the focus of that 80% of polarized training is on that quality, high intensity, resistance training work. And then the 20% is on that volume. And this is how we keep performing. We keep our power. We keep our bone density. We keep our lean mass and we don't age out. So in some of these other conversations, you've brought up the mental side. Mm -hmm. I think there is a big mental side here. I've I've coached a few women who have gone through menopause. Mm -hmm. And it's life changing, and they—I mean, not—they were not happy about it. No. So, how do you, as a coach, 
help a woman through that. Yeah. So one of the other things to understand is that with the fluctuation of estrogen and progesterone, it directly affects the neurotransmitters. So you'll have episodes of high anxiety, depression. You also have irritability that isn't really sparked by anything. So people are like, why am I so irritable? And all of it has to do with neurotransmitters. So we can look and say, okay, well, what do we need to do? So this is where things like adaptogens and creatine really come into play to help modulate those mood changes that are neurotransmitter-based. The other problem with menopause and the mental status, I shouldn't say it's a problem, but it is, is culturally we don't talk about it. As much as people don't want to talk about periods and menstrual cycle, that is becoming more normalized. But when we talk about menopause, the automatic image that comes to so many people is the golden girls, like old women, right? Right. And this is another reason why people are like, I'm not in menopause. I'm not perimenopause. I don't want to talk about it. And so they have a hard time discussing with their coach, which is going on because of that cultural nuance. And it can be perpetuated if we keep doing not the right kind of training and matching nutrition. So then we can start following into the I'm too old to race mentality, which is super hard because women who race and are competitive, their identity is wrapped up in it. So when we start changing things and we start seeing performance improvements and body composition changes, it improves also part of the mental status. And it's hard. I'm not going to lie. Like Celine's work with her community of peri and postmenopausal women, you'll see it all the time. They're like, I'm going crazy. I don't know what's going on. And it's a support network where people can go and talk about it so they know they're not alone. And so as a coach, you can approach it and say, look, there are neurotransmitter issues that are going on. We know that there's a cultural issue going on and it's okay to talk about it. Like it's okay to say I'm, I'm in perimenopause and I'm going through these changes and know that you're going to have days that are really low and days that are really fantastic. And that's all part of it because men age in a linear fashion. There isn't this discernible point where all of a sudden they're changing so rapidly. So we don't hear about it in the cultural context. That's what I was going to say. And in, in, in a strange way, we can kind of fool ourselves. Like we might get some gray hairs, yeah. things like that, but there's no event in our life that says you've hit a certain stage in your life. Right, exactly. That, that women have. Right. And even with testosterone, it's a slow decline in men where all of a sudden women are, boom, losing estrogen, right? And so there's all of those rapid changes. So it's the support. So if you have an endurance athlete who's really fighting against putting some resistance training in, it's small doses of it to really start to address some of that. And then as she gets stronger, she's starting to see her performance come up. So it's it's small strategies because it's not only the training nutrition part that changes, it's the whole aspect of who she is, her identity. It's the whole aspect of changing everything that she's doing that she's been used to for however many years she's been in sport. And it's also the time point where a lot of women are finding success in career. They might have younger kids or they might have teenagers. They might have aging adults. So there's all these external pressures to consider as well. So all of those impact on the mental capacity that women have, plus the issue of changes in neurotransmitters, plus brain fog, which people are like, what is that? It's you're walking through the day in a gray haze. That's the best way it's been described to me. But you can do things with that, with adaptogens. Some women are using SSRIs because we know that that helps with vasomotor symptoms and brain fog. We have some women who turn to menopause hormone therapy, and that's fine, but understand that it's a therapy. It's not replacing your hormones. 
Because as you're going through this, you're also losing estrogen receptors. They're becoming less sensitive. Some are more sensitive, some are less. So when you're adding exogenous hormones, don't expect that to do the same thing that your natural hormones did. It helps slow the rate of change. It definitely helps with mood. It helps with a lot of the other symptoms that interfere with life, but it's not the panacea that we want to avoid this aging process. What is your feeling about that? Because I know a lot of physicians, as soon as their patients hit menopause, they put them on hormone therapy. It's just a, almost a given. I know. It's like when a teenage girl comes in with irregular periods and they put on an OC. Yeah. There's a time and a place for exogenous hormone use. And like you can, if you have serious health issues like PCOS or endometriosis, that's great for o- OCs. When you are going through the menopause transition and your symptoms are interfering with your daily quality of life. So your mood is one where you're so significantly depressed and you're very lethargic and you can't sleep because you have lots of vasomotor symptoms and you have no sex drive. And there's all of these things that are interfering with who you are. Then there's a time and a place to talk to your physician about using menopause hormone therapy. Notice I'm not calling it hormone replacement therapy because we're not replacing. It's a therapy, but you also need to change training and nutrition with the hormone therapy to maximize your potential. And then down the track, we know that five, six years post-menopause, this is where you want to start tapering off because you've gone through the transition. And if you've changed up training and nutrition to help with body composition, that when you taper off the hormones, you don't have this massive backlash about being on them. So again, it's a therapy to get through things because it is a very difficult time for women. But there's also other options that you can use. You can look at using, like I said, SSRIs. You can look at using adaptogens. You can look at using cognitive behavior therapy. So there are other things to do before the automatic response of here are some hormones. Now, what about women? We talked about contraceptives. What about women who, before they were on menopause, were on birth control for years and years and years? Do they continue that? Do they get off of that? And and what is the impact on them if they come off of it? Yeah, so this is something they need to work with their physician. And there, there are medical recommendations for women who are over the age of 40 to get off oral contraceptives because of some increased DVT risks, but also because we don't know when they're hitting that perimenopause. The general recommendation is to go off OCs and then use an IUD. And then because your body may or may not start ovulating again, depending on if you have ovarian failure from menopause or not, they can keep track of that on an IUD and help you understand where your body is. So there's definitely a phase in, phase out with using OC. And it's something you should talk to an endocrinologist about. First, you can talk to your GP, but it's doubtful they know a lot about it. There are some really good specialists, endocrinologists around the country now that are working specifically with active peri- and postmenopausal women. So it is definitely something to have a conversation about. We've talked about a lot. We're getting towards the end of our time here. So before we finish up, we did want to ask you about your new book. Yeah, so on the offshoot of the first book, Roar, there was one chapter on menopause and had so many women who were looking for information because... Most of the information out there was on sedentary women who weren't active. So the active women got a plethora of questions about it. So then we wrote a book that was specific to peri- and postmenopausal women. Next Level, Guide to Kicking Ass Through the Menopause Transition and Beyond. So the small little bits that I talked about are just highlights, really. But the whole book is a 
bunch of information to really help navigate all of this. I'm glad that there are increasingly worthwhile resources for women, right? That are specific to the women, the female athlete. I know that Trevor and I were involved on a podcast uh, with Tennille Hoogerland called Perimenopause and Beyond, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just, it's, it's so nice to see, you know, to round this conversation back to where we started of there hasn't been enough research. There isn't enough information. I'm really excited that we do have these experts now who are taking women into consideration, you know, as they should be. So yeah, thank you. Me too. It's yeah, (laughs) I I bet. (laughs) Where where was all this information, Stacey, you know, know, 100 years ago, you know? Yeah. Not even. Where was this information five years ago? (laughs) Right, right. Finally, let's hear from Kristen Legan and her thoughts on how things are changing for the better. I think Stacey Sims is doing incredible work on the the physiological side of female athletes and what does it mean in terms of how we should be training, how our bodies are reacting to the training. And so because of her kind of leading the way, there's more and more research coming out that's helping us kind of identify those things. But I'd say maybe even bigger of a challenge or, or difference is just the, there's a big mental difference between female athletes and male athletes, I find, for the most part. This isn't across the board, but just the way a lot of women approach sports. It's more about themselves. It's more about this internal pressure or um, the satisfaction of completing a workout because that's how they feel. And it's not as much about beating the person next to you or, you know, getting a podium. And, you know, of course there's always women that are interested in that, but I just think the way you set up goals and motivation for women can be really, really different. And it's just about having that conversation and kind of figuring out what drives each individual athlete, whether they're male or female. Listeners, we have an exciting announcement. We've lowered the price of membership by 75%. Now you can enjoy all the training science at Fast Talk Laboratories for just $60 a year. Join today at fasttalklabs.com slash join. And on that note, I'm going to do a quick little plug here that coming out this fall on Fast Talk, we have a, a special podcast that's going to be hosted by Julie Young and Dee Dee Berry talking about all the different sides of training and racing for women cyclists. So we're really excited about that. But truly enjoyed your first book, Roar. I've actually read it twice now. Oh, thanks. And uh, excited to see your new book. I'm, I'm glad that you got that feedback and, and are able to, to give women athletes this information. I know they, they've, they've been looking for, that they've been searching for. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, I was really nervous as I was with Roar of Backlash because challenging the dogma, but it's just gone crazy. Like people have been wanting this information and the first week we hit the bestsellers list and I was like, oh my gosh, wow. And just gotten lots of thank yous about it. So I'm excited to see where it, what else comes out of it. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Labs at fasttalklabs.com join to become a part of our education and coaching community. 
for Dr. Stacey Sims, Rebecca Rush, Daniel Matheny, Sage Roundtree, Kristen Legan, and Trevor Connor. I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.